0: Romans. Did you know that? And one of the reasons we're staying in it is that it's filled with truth. And if we get the truths in Romans right, then we won't be wrong. (laughs) And we don't want to be wrong about the truths of the faith. And Romans is just filled with profound, significant biblical insights. and, And we just want to get it right. And one of the things Paul has done prior to the text we'll look At tonight is to try to persuade us all of us that we're guilty before God and stand vulnerable to his judgment and this is not an easy task for Paul's uh, uh, people the Jews because the Jews have been raised I know this by personal experience uh, being told that we are the chosen ones and that we have been entrusted with great spiritual privilege we have a, a religion that is unique and ancient. We have practices like circumcision and all the rest which set us apart from, from everybody else. And it's a very, very easy step from that to be filled with human pride and to think that we Jews entrusted with, that, with those spiritual privileges are immune from the judgment of God. So he's going to judge you people but not us people. I mean, he gave us all of this spiritual privilege, so in a sense, we're saved. We're not perfect, but we're already saved because we have the law, and we have circumcision, and we have all these traditions, and the prophets are ours, and you know, all the rest. And God separated us out, distinguished us from amongst all the nations. You see how your head can get filled up with all this stuff? And you can think that we're, we can think we're better than anybody else, and so, Gentiles surely stand in need of salvation, but not us. So Paul, who himself was, I think, subject to all of this pride and then graciously reduced to reality by Almighty God, though he was a rabbi, realized... Oh, no, just having the law does not get me immunity from God's judgment. Living by it does. And who has lived by the law of God? And so he was the first to admit, not me. In fact, he said, though a Hebrew of Hebrews, I'm the chiefest of all sinners And so he became radically, radically saved, but the first step was for him to be convinced of his desperate indebtedness to God, a debt he could not pay even though he was Jewish. So Paul has already, at the beginning chapters of Romans, taken pains to try to persuade Jews that though they have the law, they are vulnerable to God's judgment. And then he's also tried to persuade Gentiles of the same. Now he could hear the objection of a gentile person who might say, how could God judge me for what I do not have? After all, I don't have the law of Moses. God didn't give us the gentiles those commandments he gave them to the Jews. So therefore, I'm I'm ignorant of what God requires and even of God, and therefore He should grant me immunity from judgment. And God, through Paul, has tried to persuade those people, no, 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 no. For what is known about God is evident, we read this last time, within them. God has given us a conscience in which he has... Put as an imprint his moral character. Every one of us knows right from wrong. That's why thieves burglarize your home, hopefully, when you're not there. They usually do it at night. They know it's a wrong thing. They know there's a penalty for it. That's why nobody steals things out in the open. They try to do it when there's no cop around or things like that. Where did people get this sense of right or wrong? Well, God said, I gave it to you. And not only that, God said through Paul... Can you look up at the stars, the skies? Can you see creation order? Don't you ask the question, how did it get there? You see the design of the universe. Don't you conclude there must be a designer? So God through Paul is saying, Gentiles, you too are without excuse, for though you don't have the law of Moses, you have a revelation of God through creation and through conscience. So that's what Paul has been doing, and it's tough work. And after he made that argument, he is anticipating objections to it, particularly by my people. And that's what's going to happen now in Romans chapter 3. So my people are going to say to him, listen here, Paul, if what you say is true, If our circumcision doesn't get us brownie points... By the way, that was the sign of the covenant. If that doesn't get us brownie points with God, what good is circumcision? And if being Jewish doesn't in and of itself grant us immunity from God's judgment, then what's so hot about being Jewish? So this is kind of the objection Paul is anticipating that's going to happen. So if you could imagine Paul speaking to a large group maybe like this, and all of a sudden out of the group stands up a Jewish heckler, maybe more than one heckler, spiritual hecklers with comments and questions about what Paul has said. That's actually taking place now in Romans chapter 3. He's giving a discourse on the sinfulness of man that has to precede our appreciation for the grace of God. And in anticipation of their objections, here's what he does. It's quite interesting. He uses a technique which is a little strange to us but was very familiar in Greek culture. It's called a diatribe. And a diatribe is different than the term means today. A diatribe today means you really give a person a piece of your mind, you sort of tell them off. You use very strong language. But it was a debate technique in ancient Greek and Roman culture wherein one person wanting to make a point would establish an imaginary fictitious opponent. And he would extract from that non-existent, fictitious opponent opponent, a point of view which he could then dispute in debate. And that's exactly what Paul's doing in Romans chapter 3. You'll see it in the beginning part of the chapter. He's using this form of debate called a diatribe, where it's actually just him. He's not standing uh, against a real person. It's an imaginary person. But the arguments... Paul is extracting from this imaginary person are very, very real. Now, this is kind of complicated, I know, but it'll make sense in just a second. For instance, take a look at Romans chapter 3, verse 1. It says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Now, nobody literally asked that of Paul. But he's a smart guy. He's a Jewish guy. He knows what his fellow Jews are thinking. He knows based upon what he said in chapter 2. He knows they're saying, well, let me hear. Let me just confound you, Rabbi Paul. If you're telling me our religious rituals don't get us points with God, if you're telling me our Jewish religion doesn't grant us immunity with God, then what's the point of circumcision? What is the point of being a Jew? So he didn't actually hear that. He's extracting that objection from this imaginary opponent. See, this is the debate technique called diatribe. And so the imaginary opponent is essentially saying, look here, Paul, if being Jewish and having religious practices like circumcision does not save us, then what is the advantage of being Jewish? And uh, you might imagine that Paul at this point is going to answer by saying, none at all. There's absolutely no advantage in being Jewish. But perhaps to your surprise, that's not what he says. In fact, he says this in verse 2. Great in every respect. God has given great advantage to the Jews. Now, when you get to Romans 9, if we ever get there, uh, you will see a, a more lengthy enumeration of the spiritual advantages God gave to the Jews. Paul mentions only one here, I suppose the premier one, verse 2 great in every respect, first of all, which implies there's more to come, but he doesn't get to it till chapter 9. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. I'm overwhelmed by the privilege bestowed upon my people. God, transcendent God, who cannot be known except he reveal himself and make himself known, did in and scripturated truth, the Bible, in this case, the Old Testament scriptures. And God entrusted that to my people uh, to receive it, to record it, to copy it with diligence and care, to preserve it, and then to disseminate it to the nations of the world. This is a great, great privilege which God gave to the Jews In fact, we still think it's a privilege today. We have a holiday called Simchat Torah, which is the celebration of the Torah in scrolls. We were in Israel recently, some of us, and we were in a village in the north called Kiryat Shmona, just south of the Lebanese border, and one of the residents there invited us into his home. He and his wife, they hosted us, and we loved on them as best we could. And then he walked us to the community synagogue, and in the community synagogue, he opened uh, what's called the uh, Ark of the Covenant. He opened, he pulled back this closet, if you will, in which were these magnificent Torah scrolls, parchment, and Hebrew was written on it. It's the first five books of the Bible, that's the Torah, written by Moses and he brought it out, and there's covering on it, a big velvet covering, and he he took it off and opened them up, and he held them with great pride, and through a translator, he was explaining to us how those scrolls came to be in the possession of the community, and how old it is, and how they had, they'd be snuck out of some country into Israel, and you know, all this kind of stuff, and when they are used in a synagogue, everyone stands, and they're marched around. It would be like someone holding the scrolls and going up and down the aisles, and we would all stand, and we would go to the scrolls, but we would not touch it with our hand. They're too holy. We would have a talit, a prayer uh, shawl, and we would take the talid and touch it to it, and then we would kiss it. Or else we would take our our Bible or a prayer book called the Sidur, and we would touch it to it, and we would kiss it. Showing respect for, for scripture. And then someone would be called up front, it's called Aliyah, to this uh, this, this platform, and all the elders would be the equivalent to, say, of our deacons. The, let's say the deacons would be around, and sometimes a young person would be called up to read from Torah, but you can't touch it with your finger. You have a silver pointer that's put in your hand, and you, could, you apply the pointer to the text to make sure you're not losing your spot. And then you're reading it in Hebrew, but if you mispronounce a word, that's what the elders are there for. They're there to correct you. And even though it's a little embarrassing, there you are in front of everyone. It's a more serious violation to distort the word of God. So all this is, is going on and the congregation is amening the reading and all this kind of... I mean, God chose the Jews to be the vehicle of transmission of his word, and Jews have taken it seriously and have copied over the years from copy to copy, painstakingly counting every jot, every tittle, going over it again and again, scribes doing all kinds of stuff. I mean, in 1947, they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, for instance, which contains most of the books of the Old Testament. When scholars compared the contents of the Dead Sea Scrolls to the then earliest existing Old Testament books, they were 1,000, what we had before the Dead Sea Scrolls were 1,000 years later than the Dead Sea Scrolls. So you have a gap of 1,000 years. You have the Dead Sea Scrolls here written 1,000 years before these, which we thought were really cool, really special. But they're a thousand years newer than the Dead Sea Scrolls. So a lot of naysayers and critics were saying, let's line them up together. Let's put them on a table. Dead Sea Scrolls here and what we already have here and you will see so many inconsistencies and errors and you Christians, you you, you people of the book, you Bible thumpers will realize your confidence in the Bible is in vain. Look at it because you know how it is. Look at it here. If we started over here uh, with with, Jared, with Brother J over here, I whispered something in his ear and then and, and our brother whispered it to Buddy and Buddy to the next guy and all the By the time we got over here, the original message, it's a fun game you want to do it the original message over here we got over here would be totally different you know what i, mean? I whisper over here and, and say something like it's a very nice it's going to be a very nice day tomorrow over here we'd get to yes i really like my new red corvette i mean i mean that's you see the distortion so critics of the bible were thinking at a thousand years it's going to be tremendous gap and discrepancy what do they find Supernatural correspondence. Not only not one point of doctrine called into question, literal words, phraseology, word order not called into question. The only differences might be one might say Jesus Christ, the other might say Christ Jesus. 99.5% correspondence, a thousand year gap. That cannot be said of any other classical literature, not Socrates, not Plato, not any of that stuff. Don't you see? This is the mark of almighty God superintending the scriptures through Jews. It was a Jewish community of rebels called Essenes, John the Baptist might have been one of them, who made copies of the Tanakh, Old Testament scripture, preserving it, putting it in vessels, storing it in caves so that the Romans wouldn't get it, all this... Here's my point. Paul says, are you kidding, fictitious objector? You think there's no... Yes, everyone is locked under sin, Jews and Gentiles. Everyone's going to be judged by God. But don't you think for one minute you don't have spiritual advantage? First of all, you've been entrusted with the oracles of God. I remember when I was a young Jewish kid, I went to yeshiva, which is kind of like... Catholic school for Jews, that kind of deal. And, uh, and I remember one time I had my, my uh, what we call the Hebrew Scriptures. We don't call it the Old Testament because that presumes there's a new one and we don't want to acknowledge that. So we just call it the Hebrew Scriptures. And I remember one time I came into class and I, I, I put it on my desk, but I put another book on top of it and the rabbi rebuked me. You don't put anything on the Hebrew Scriptures. And, and, and we had a practice where I went to school. If you happen to drop your copy of the Hebrew Scriptures, you have to fast for a whole day and ask God to forgive you. It's to just show deep respect for the Word. Now, sadly, sadly, the contents of the book have not yet pierced the hearts uh, of, of my people uh, as, it, as it one day will. But God entrusted Jews as the vehicle by which the Word of God would be received, would be preserved, and would be transmitted to the world. So first, Paul says, uh, you know what he says? Every Jew has proximity to the Word of God. Every Jew, he's saying to the naysayer, the fictitious objector, he's saying every Jew is given like a VIP access pass to the word of God. Gentiles did not have it. Gentiles had to discern what God is like through creation and conscience. Jews are given what we call special revelation, not revelation of a general kind. Look at the Acts. Every Jewish kid could be exposed to the word of God, to the law of Moses, to the Torah. Everyone. Paul is saying, would you demean that? Of course God has given you a spiritual privilege. And so that's how he deals with the first imagined objection from the imagined objector. But here's another one. Verses 3 and 4. What then? This is not Paul saying this. This is Paul saying this is is what the imaginary objector would say. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? And now Paul answers. Now it's Paul in verse 4. May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So so the objector is saying, look at here. Uh, God promised to bless our people, did he not? Through Abraham, you know, I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. I mean, the fact that some of us have been unfaithful to God, that doesn't give him a right to be unfaithful to us and to judge us, does it? I mean, he made this promise to to Abraham. So the objection is, how can our unfaithfulness <laughs> give God justification for, for judging us? And Paul is, is answering this terrible argument. He answers with a resounding, may it never be, which is the equivalent of, no, perish the thought. What part of no don't you understand? It can never be that God will be unfaithful no matter what we do. And so, uh, this is a phrase uttered in horror by Paul, the insinuation that God is unfaithful in light of our unfaithfulness. Paul says, No, God remains faithful in spite of the unfaithfulness of people. Now, listen to this. When most of us read this, and I'm one of them, we think of God being faithful to bless, and he is. But there's another aspect to this. It's a negative aspect, but it's true. God is no, not only faithful to bless those who are his and who obey, he's also faithful to judge those who disobey. Now, we don't like to hear that, but, but, but it's part of the faithfulness of God. So the imaginary objector is sort of saying, uh, you know, uh, uh, God is not going to judge us because he made a promise to us through Abraham. And Paul is saying, no, he's faithful to bless your obedience, but he's just as faithful to hold you responsible and to judge you for your disobedience. Essentially, Paul is saying there is nothing external from God that can affect his faithfulness to bless those who are saved and to judge those who are unrepentant and remain unrepentant unsaved. And Paul is essentially saying God's faithfulness emanates from his own character. You and I have nothing, nothing to do with it. So there's nothing the unsaved person can do to nullify God's judgment, and there's nothing, I love this part, there's nothing the saved person can do to nullify God's grace. This is the basis of eternal security. Though I be unfaithful, he remains faithful, why because his faithfulness is not in response to anything i do his faithfulness eman- emanates from his own character he is a faithful god there's nothing the unsaved person can do no matter how religious no, no matter whether there's circumcision whether there's baptism it doesn't matter there's nothing the unsaved person can do to nullify god's judgment and there's nothing the saved person can do to nullify god's blessing now, to support the notion of God's faithfulness to judge sin, Paul invokes a passage from Psalm 51. It's verse 4 of 51. It's, uh, and he says, as it is written, and now he quotes the words of King David, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. David said this in the context of his sin with Bathsheba, which you perhaps are familiar with. In fact, this is exactly where it took place. We were just there a few weeks ago, some of us. On the right is something called the City of David. In the middle is the Kidron Valley. On the left is now an Arab village called Silwan. That's the city of David where David established his capital. He took it from the Jebusites. That's ancient Jerusalem. That's the city of David. He built his palace there. And from that vantage point, you could see how he could look down on uh, houses below with flat roofs and see an attractive gal bathing on one of those roofs. You see, it's not far-fetched at all. that When we were there, I imagine in my mind, ah, now I see how David could pull it off. His palace was on this hill up above, an elevated area, and he could just be out on his porch, you know, taking a break from kingly duties. And then he sees this attractive gal Bathsheba. She was taking a bath or something, as, as I read the scriptures. And he was looking where he shouldn't be looking, and one thing led to another, and And they had relations entirely outside the will of God. And then God determined to judge him. And what he says here, King David says, the judgment of God, my fellow Jews, is righteous. So Paul quotes it, the words of David, that you, God, may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. David said, I have been unfaithful but you remain true, faithful to yourself. You're faithful to judge sin, is what David is saying. Okay. David, uh, Paul has now handled two objections. There's a final one, and I'll speed this up. Um, it's in verse 5 and on. Get this. The imaginary objector says this. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms. And then he responds, may it never be. He says that again. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through, the objector says in verse 7, if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported and some claim that we say, let's do evil, that good may come. Paul says their condemnation is just. So here's the deal. Things get bizarre. Do you know, sometimes people ask legitimate questions of your faith and mine and of the gospel, and they ought to be answered. But in other cases, people uh, are, ask, are saying ridiculous things. They're not logical, and they're not rational. They're just smoke screens to dissuade us from the matter at hand. This is one of them. Here's what the fictitious objector is essentially saying. Paul, check this out. You're telling me that I'm a sinner And that God is right to judge sinners. He's righteous in judging me. But I don't agree with that. Because if, in fact, my sin has given God an opportunity to display his goodness and grace and holiness and righteousness, I'm doing good advertising for God, right? So he should not hold me responsible for calling people's attention to how holy he is, how righteous, how good, and how gracious he is. I mean, if every time I sin, it gives an opportunity for God to act in light of his holy judgment, holy Toledo. I'm really helping God out. That's, that's what these characters are essentially saying. And, and, and you know what Paul says? And I've been slanderously accused of saying, based on the grace of God, we ought to sin all the more. Let's just sin all the more and give God's grace a chance to manifest itself. You know what Paul says? I'm speaking in human terms. This is, this is human wisdom which is actually foolishness you know what his conclusion is to the person who says this stuff he doesn't even respond he says their condemnation is just this is a distortion of grace isn't it when you've been fully graced by God you have found the strongest reason to obey ever it's no longer the fear of God it's our love for him he has bestowed upon us such amazing and undeserved grace we would burst if we didn't have a chance to express our gratitude And how do we do that? We want to do that which is pleasing to the Father. We don't have to. We don't feel constrained to. We have found a better motivation. It's his unconditional love for us. It motivates us. So grace has not given us license to sin. Grace has put our sin in check more than the law could. The law is an external imposition. Grace is something that flows up within me that says, Oh, God, I'm a rascal. I'm a scoundrel. Oh, God, you deserve better than me. I don't deserve you, but you have me and I have you. God, this is grace greater than all my sin. Oh, God, I don't want to disappoint you. I don't want to let you down. I don't want to offend your holiness. I want to put my obedience in a package which says a big thank you, Lord, for saving my soul freely and by grace. So Paul says to the objector, are you out of your mind? Do you think God is going to let you off the hook because you think your sin gives God an opportunity to distinguish himself as being holy? Do you think, therefore, God has no basis for judging your sin? Okay, so Paul has confronted the imaginary objectors, and I think in a very persuasive way, which leads now to this concluding question. Why did he do all this? What's up? What's what's Paul's point? I think it's pretty simple. Paul's point in this being recorded for us is to show us that every imaginable human objection to God's legitimate and justifiable judgment of all of us who are sinners has all been dealt with. So in effect, Paul, the defense attorney, rests. The defense of God now rests. And Paul's point is to lock us all, Jews and Gentiles, under sin. To take away any argument. I have the law. So what? Having it is not the same as doing it. And then the Gentile says, I don't have the law. So what? You have other means of responding to God. Yeah, but doesn't my sin give God's grace a chance to manifest itself? Paul has laid to rest all of these objections so as to show us We're all indebted to God and vulnerable to his judgment. We're all guilty. And so Paul is essentially saying, stop making excuses. Nobody is good enough to live up to the required standards of an infinitely and unapproachably holy God. Stop avoiding the issue. Stop with these crazy questions and objections. Stop asking me, what about the aborigine in Australia? Come on, what about you? What are you going to do about your sin? Stop talking to me about the manifold errors in the Bible, a book you haven't even read. Stop with that ridiculousness. Stop telling me all roads lead to Rome. If all roads lead us to access to the throne of grace, somebody's got to be wrong along the way, because some people say Allah and Muhammad is the way. Other people say Jesus is the way. You can't harmonize those. One of us is wrong. All roads don't lead to Rome. Only one road leads to Stop, 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 stop with this. Well, I'm not the worst person in the world, I haven't murdered anyone lately. Stuff like it's not about you comparing yourself to your neighbor, it's about you and me falling short of the infinite, holy, inviolable standards of God. Paul says, Stop already. Guilty, guilty, guilty is charged. We're all guilty. All these objections. But they're fruitless. Here's the point. For all have sinned. Jews, Gentiles, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all guilty. Jews are guilty. Gentiles are guilty. Everybody you see, everybody you know, you, me, we're all guilty before. It's a painful chapter. Painful. In fact, I know so many who, because of it, avoid looking at it. I wish we had that permission, but we're not allowed to. We have to read all of the Bible. It's painful, but so necessary. And the pain, even the pain, is from a loving God to help us to see who we are so as to see what our need is before him. We are all guilty of sin. And this recognition must come first. We must all accept the verdict guilty as charged before we run to the throne of grace and say, judge of all the earth, would you grant me a pardon? Would you forgive my sin? Could you take my guilt and satisfy it through the death of your sinless son? Could you take my guilt and put it on him, impaled on a cross. Could you take it off of me and put it on him? Because if you don't, I don't have a prayer. I don't have a way. My religion can't get me points with you. My good deeds can't get me points with you. My excuses don't work. Would you take all of this corruption and filth And sin and degradation, would you take it and put it on your son? And then something in us, it's a miracle, something in us moves from petition to praise. And we say, oh, God, you did. And that's why your son, Jesus, said, my God, my God, why hast you forsaken me. It's because of me. He was forsaken because of the load of my sin on him. It couldn't have been his. He had none. He allowed himself to be spiritually apart from his father. The thing which he dreaded most, it wasn't the physical harm which he endured, which was his biggest dread. It was separation the Father. He allowed the separation so that I could be joined together. And then Jesus said, from the cross, it is finished. Three words. Once you have this transaction with God, once you pray to him, once you confess your guilt and sin, you petition him and you Beg for forgiveness. And then you find yourself transitioning because something in you, it's his spirit persuading you. There is a means of being right with God in spite of your sin. And the way to be right is, to, is through Jesus, who is the way and the truth and the life. Once you realize these, the significance of these words, it is finished, paid in full, debt canceled. <gasps> then you rise up from your plea and your petition and you somehow... You don't feel dirty, unclean, and on the outs anymore. Somehow you don't feel like a guilty party. Somehow you you feel like a member of God's family. You feel like his new son. You feel like his new daughter. You feel like you're born again. You feel like freedom has been birthed in you, forgiveness and pardon and cleansing. You feel like this... You've had entree into a new relationship. You feel like Jesus is your Savior. And you walk around and you say, You know what you say? You say, Jesus paid it all. You say, All to Him I owe. You say, Sin. Ah, oh, it left a crimson stain. Oh, Then you say, He washed it white as snow. Sing with me. Jesus paid it all, all to Him. We owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. What did He do? He. Has it happened to you? why not tonight why not now <gasps> before christmas <gasps> what a celebration it would be for you the birth of your new personal savior <gasps> who's willing to birth new life in you tonight why not tonight why <gasps> you're not the you're not the objector who Paul debate, oh you don't have the audacity to think you can talk God out of his holy and righteous judgment of your... Don't do that. Guilty, guilty, guilty is charged. What a sound it could be for you to hear the master's gavel, the judge of the universe, down. As if it's a court, down. Go free. I have no case against you. I grant you an acquittal. And then you walk off. And then the judge said, well, no, Not so fast. Come back. I, 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 I didn't just forgive the debt you owe. You are mine now. <laughs> I don't want you walking away. Come this way now. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you. A... Remember, I just didn't pronounce something legal upon you. That would be enough. No, 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 no. I, I want to take you into my family. Now I want to grant you status as a son or a daughter. Why not tonight? Why not tonight? Could I ask you to bow your heads just for a second? Just just another moment. Later you can have time if you'd like to meet with someone privately in the Connection Center, but right now corporately. I wonder if you would just look how quickly we'll do it. Just raise your hand. Raise your hand, Lord Jesus. If this is your desire, thank you, ma'am. You can put it. Thank you, Lord Jesus. This is my desire. This is my uplifted hand. God bless you, ma'am. You could put your hand down. Raise your hand. If tonight, oh God, come into my life, forgive my sin. I'm no longer uh, going to resist. I have to acknowledge the guilty verdict. I am guilty, and I also am so pleased to be enabled to acknowledge for the first time that Jesus paid it all all the guilt and penalty of my sin. Raise your hand. Say, come into my, in your ha- raised hand, you're saying, come into my life, Lord Jesus. Make me new. Help me celebrate Christmas as if it's a day. Thank you very much. You could put your hand down. Thank you so much. Is there anybody else? What a, what a miracle has just happened in the lives of a few. Don't you see this as a miracle? You couldn't raise your hand to give assent to Jesus unless Jesus enabled you to. Do you know something? He saw you to be his even before you knew him by name. Is there anybody else who wants to leave hand in hand with the Lord Jesus tonight? Is there anybody? Just raise your hand. We'll, we'll, we'll pray briefly. Anybody else? Miracle working God, master of the universe, we love you. And we love you because we're motivated by your love. What a loving thing you've done even tonight. To add to our family, those who are born anew. What a wonderful day and time to be born anew. Today, the day of salvation. May it be for everyone here that we walk out, head up, shoulders back. Yes, we have a sin problem, but a Savior came to solve it for us. Jesus paid it all. And now all to him we owe. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the perfect Savior, make us to be now faithful and devoted followers of yours, not as a have-to, but as a want-to, for you have first loved us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.